This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today, we're debating different views on handling media coverage with Frank Gimbel and Pat Knight. Frank founded GRGB after serving as an assistant United States attorney from 1963 through 1968. Over the years, he has expanded his practice into civil litigation, including complex business, employment, communications, and First Amendment cases. Frank has represented small businesses and large corporations, as well as individuals ranging from working men and women to judges, CEOs, and other professionals. Frank is truly a legend in Milwaukee. He has served on boards, committees, and won more awards than can be counted. He served as president of the State Bar of Wisconsin and the Milwaukee Bar Association. Pat's 30-plus years of litigation experience in the civil, white-collar, criminal, and healthcare fields make him uniquely qualified to handle the complex legal issues that impact multiple areas of a client's interests. His experience with federal, state, and local regulating and investigating agencies gives Pat the ability to guide clients through the multiple areas of risk that affect today's business and professional climate, and his experience and rapport with the federal and state agencies and prosecutors provides clients the necessary access to creative solutions. Pat is widely recognized by his peers as one of the best and has received many awards affirming this. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say these are two pretty powerful attorneys in the state of Wisconsin. They're wonderful role models, and I consider myself beyond lucky to learn from them every day. They've had their fair share of high-profile cases, and I thought there'd be no one better to talk to about how to handle the media. When it comes to dealing with the media with the media in cases, there's kind of a, a spectrum, and you guys fall on both ends of the spectrum. So why don't we take a second and go through um, both of your philosophies when it comes to dealing with media. Pat, go ahead. Okay. Um, in the framework of, uh, of my cases, I, the fundamental question that I uh, look at in terms of dealing with any media involvement is whether or not um, there is a benefit to my client from communication with the media and whether or not it can be controlled. Um, and in my case, and particularly with my clientele, uh, just about every time the answer is no. So I'm not, um, I rarely do I take calls from the media or issue statements. I try and avoid, um, as I'm handling cases, I try to avoid press releases that would be you know, attributable to me or now I do get, uh, or my client, but I do get involved in uh, cases in which, you know, we certainly hire experts in that regard that coordinate communications. Oftentimes, um, you know, they'll reach out to affected people or take a position, you know, on a website. But the control of interviews and things like that you know, is rarely is uh, in my in my cases is that a risk that um, doesn't put my client potentially in harm. So that's kind of the guidepost that I operate off of. 
I think one of the things that always sticks out to me when there is a case with media involved is something you've said to me from day one is, don't say anything. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's oftentimes, um, and I'm representing people who are, you know, they're in some compromised position. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do I, if I respond publicly in a matter, am I taking a negative one-day story and turning it into a three-day story. Um, and then am I, then when I refuse to take any calls, then um, uh, it's reported on my client that the attorney who spoke before uh, now refused to, uh, you know, admit or deny. Um, and so more often than not, um, you know, I simply won't take any calls and in most uh, cases and where it's necessary to get something out I think oftentimes it's much better to do that through someone other than the client who's targeted or the attorney representing the client who's targeted because then all it does is make the story um, more enhanced uh, as far as if your client's dealing with with negative issues so uh, there are you know there are some exceptions to it but in my view they're pretty rare and Frank, you're on the other end of the spectrum, some would say. Well, yes. Uh, I think uh, much of what Pat says uh, I don't disagree with. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, sometimes the cases that we get involved with have uh, immediate interest uh, from the point of view of the media and whatever their audience is, print or electronic. Uh, and uh, you can make uh, a one-time story into a chapter book. And uh, a chapter book uh, normally is not to the advantage of a client. Uh, the cardinal rule that I have for cases that have any media interest is to instruct with no wiggle room uh, my clients to absolutely not speak publicly about the case. And that's uh, if it's a spectacular criminal case, if it's an employment case, or even uh, from time to time um, a highly uh, interesting civil uh, case. But uh, I have found through my 60 plus years as a lawyer that uh, frequently uh, the lawyer can uh, influence public opinion about the side that the lawyer represents. Uh, I'm thinking most recently of a case that I handled uh, which was an employment case involving a public official and uh, he was uh, in harm's way with respect to the establishment that was looking to essentially take his job away from him. And uh, I think that as a consequence of uh, my orchestrating another side to the story and uh, essentially coalescing his support system in the community, uh, he became a kind of uh, a popular underdog from the public point of view and uh, at the end of the day, the litigation that we um, commenced on behalf of our client uh, led the other side to come to the table eager to settle the case because their side was vilified uh, by the media, uh, by a, a well-orchestrated, I, I suggest, uh, uh, suggestion about uh, the uh, failure of uh, the, the, the public employer to provide uh, an appropriate procedural um, uh, address to uh, the performance of my client. But uh, had my client spoken to the media, 
I think an opposite result would have occurred. I think that he would have lost a lot of support in the community, and I think the public officials would have been um, uh, made to think that uh, they were uh, the, uh, uh, the favorites in the contest. And uh, it turned out they were the underdogs in the contest by reason of their own uh, continued misbehavior and, uh, and, and inappropriate reaction. So I say, uh, as a summary matter, that every case has to be judged uh, by its own uh, merits as it relates to the public. Uh, in one case, I represented a 77-year-old man who essentially executed his 13-year-old uh, African-American neighbor. There's no way that you can make that publicity look good no. for him. Yeah. Uh, unless, as uh, was the case, you're going to pursue um, an insanity defense. Mm -hmm. And then I think you can uh, use the media to a certain extent to, if not uh, exculpate him from responsibility, at least explain and try to create understanding that uh, crazy people do crazy things and uh, they're not put in prison for it. If, and this is for both of you, if you are going to involve the media or if you are going to answer questions, what boundaries do you try to establish besides, you know, breaking client attorney privilege, obviously you can't do that. Are there any other important boundaries to establish or is it kind of an open line of communication? Um, I don't think you can do an open line of communication where litigation is in process. Um, and, you know, if you make a decision, and in, in my case what I would do um, is have a discussion off the record um, beforehand what I will and won't answer. Um, you know, the, the sneak attack ones, you know, you're going into a courtroom, your client has some, you know, there's some media interest in the matter, and then you, you know, you've got a long walk down a hallway mm -hmm. uh, with a reporter, uh, and so there, there are times you can't avoid that. But there are a few tricks if you call the reporter by her name, ask how her husband's doing, if mm -hmm. she's seen so-and-so lately, then she has nothing that they can use on the news uh, the whole time and all they have is a picture going on. So, I mean, there are things that are built-in uh, negative, but, you know, stepping through a courtroom uh, door, you know, my concern is uh, uh, that they not have anything that they can use, knowing mm -hmm. that TV is just uh, um, But I think, you know, you're guided, Commenting on litigation, uh, I think, raises ethical concerns, and you know the reality is, is it's going to come off as very self-serving because you're in the case as an advocate, so you're really at their mercy as to, you know, how any statement that you would make is going to get is going to get spun. Right. What about you, Frank? Any boundaries? That well, you, uh, you know, the, there is a reality check, and I think Pat touched on it, and. Um, it is that uh, I have from time to time had uh, sit-down interviews with television reporters uh, that lasted uh, between three and 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, the media editors will decide what they're gonna put on the air. Right. And they may put on a 20-second uh, a comment. Uh, so, um, uh, I think that uh, awareness by a lawyer in uh, highly uh, public cases about the fact that uh, the lawyer doesn't control what the ultimate public consumer 
is going to hear from the lawyer about his client and or about his client's case. Uh, uh, somebody else does that. And so I think uh, caution is something that comes with experience and uh, you should try to uh, avoid uh, using um, phrases that in and of themselves may uh, not support your case, mm -hmm. may support the other side, uh, notwithstanding that in the context of the totality of the interview that you were involved with, uh, you had uh, like a closing argument to the jury in a case. But if the jury only hears that which the opposition decides mm -hmm. to uh, uh, allow them to hear, uh, then there can be a rebound effect, and the rebound effect can uh, create negativity. But I think uh, the more you um, are involved in high-profile cases, uh, the more aware you are of who it is you're talking to, mm -hmm. and uh, whether or not that uh, individual or group of individuals is a play fair. And um, mm -hmm. if you find that they don't play fair, and they're really looking to put a needle in your eye, uh, then I think you have to be uh, selective in, in who you talk to if you make a decision to talk to anybody. Right, right. Uh, yeah, those sound bites will really can kill you. Um, let's talk about, obviously, media is changing every day, pretty much at this point. Um, and one of the big changes that's happened probably over the past 10 years is that we are now in a 24-hour news cycle. So something huge that happens yesterday, people forget about today because there's something else that's huge and new. Has that affected how you deal with the media at all? Frank? Well, I think um, the, the really high profile case uh, does not evaporate within the framework of a day mm -hmm. because the case has uh, multiple uh, chapters, if you will. Uh, there is the pre-charging chapters, there's the charging chapter, there's the pre-trial chapter, there's the courtroom chapter, mm -hmm. and each one of them, each one of those chapters has different considerations uh, from the point of view of how it will serve or disserve your client. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at uh, crimes where there's a discernible victim, uh, you know that uh, the public, by and large, will be supportive of the victim mm -hmm. and, and be antagonistic to uh, he who, and I say that gender neutral, he or she who has caused this individual to become a victim. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, you should always consider the fact that uh, uh, not unlike soap operas that are fictional scripts on television that the public uh, likes to hear and, and, and lawyer shows as well, uh, you have to be mindful of the fact that um, uh, there, there, there should be some boundaries, if you will, mm -hmm. to what is the question of the day and how does it relate to the total picture of your representation. Is it pre-charge? Is it after-charge? Is it, is it, uh, are you going to be attacking mm -hmm. law enforcement who gathered evidence for, uh, for their inappropriate uh, um, excessive procedures? Mm -hmm. Uh, or are you going to be talking about trial issues like, as I said before, uh, the mental capacity of the individual who is your client? Right. Yeah. Well, Pat, similar question, a little bit different though, is one of the other things that's changed over the past 10 years is there, it's not just traditional media anymore. There are, there are podcasts, there are blogs, an alarming number of people get their news solely from Facebook or Twitter. How does that affect your practice? 
Well, I mean, I think from a standpoint of following media and, you know, I utilize people that are a lot more skilled than me in tracking uh, what's being commented on mm -hmm. out there. It doesn't affect from the standpoint that I think the risks are the same, that mm -hmm. you, if you engage with the media uh, or you engage with any of the uh, social platforms and everything, you uh, there's a certain amount of risk involved, and I primarily um, represent people in the uh, healthcare professions. As a result, I deal with health systems. I often deal with the federal government and various uh, agencies involved there. Um, and you know um, that you know large health systems and the federal government has a policy they follow with regard to when they'll issue a press release and there won't be any comment otherwise. But in attempting, you know, to resolve things, I try and make it a point that they know while we're in discussions that um, that they're not going to be, have to be concerned about an interview from me or a statement being issued on behalf of mine because, quite frankly, I have to deal with that health system again and I have to deal with those federal prosecutors and agency heads mm -hmm. again. And, uh, they're on the type of matters that if I were to be issuing statements on my own, then I, you know, I question whether or not the next time down the road they'll be taking my call yeah. um, and they'll be willing to uh, explore resolving things with me. So from a healthcare perspective, I, um, I look at it with regard to my client and that the primary question is, um, is, or primary issue is to do no harm. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I look and I, I see that there is a risk that a statement issued could, uh, could produce any sort of adverse result or compromise, then, then I don't think uh, um, it's any question. I think then you avoid it and you avoid at least the, the chance of some harm. Let's play, please advise. So I've got three hypothetical situations and I want both of your takes on, on some quick snippets of what you would tell someone to do if they asked you these questions. Hypothetical number one, I'm a nurse that works at a pain clinic. I am worried that some doctors are falsely reporting to Medicaid and Medicare. Should I share this worry with the press? Frank, why don't you start us off? Well, I, I don't think uh, that uh a person who is in the middle of a controversy that could give rise to either uh, ethical misconduct charges or criminal misconduct charges should be talking to the press. Mm -hmm. So uh, your hypothetical, I would suggest that uh, this nurse ought to uh, obtain uh, trustworthy counsel and uh, have the counsel uh, drive the vehicle, if you will, uh, of uh, his or her interaction with either the regulators or the public. Okay. And I don't think there's an exception to that. Pat, what about you? Are there any key TAM considerations in this or? Well, certainly. I mean, in key TAM is a whistleblower mm -hmm. um, litigation and that, you know, one, they'd have to consult with counsel if, um, as to whether or not they, that's quite an undertaking mm -hmm. and it requires a lot of evaluation and been involved in those and you can spend up to a year investigating to determine whether they're worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have to keep in mind with regard to 
speaking to the media, I mean, it's, it's absolute not, I mean, in terms of even disclosing it. Um, in, the, in the healthcare field, there are a number of regulatory and prosecuting agencies that like to make their own decision and generally like to uh, uh, conduct investigations in a covert manner. Disclosure affects things a great deal. Fraud investigations, which is you know what the scenario is, are very extensive. There's data mining that goes on. Uh, those agencies will not appreciate having to do that in the light of day because mm -hmm. they have to make decisions. So under those circumstances, um, while a key TAM can be considered, you've got to deal with the agencies that are charged by law with uh, investigating and regulating uh, that sort of conduct. Okay. Hypothetical number two. I am president of the local school board. Unfortunately, I have recently been arrested and charged with negligent homicide. The school board is receiving pressure from the public to remove me, and I am receiving pressure from the school board to hold a press conference to address the charges. What should I do? Pat, we'll start with you this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to opt for the uh, press conference. Weird. You? you know, yeah, with uh, pending uh, charges. No, I mean, as, as a practical matter, um, there's, there's no upside when there's a homicide charge out in putting yourself out in a public mm -hmm. forum um, because there's a lot of considerations that come into play and you, so you can't put the client out there on that. Um, but every decision, you know, whether to remain on a school board uh, or anything else has got to be weighed. Is it, is it tenable? If you're on a school board, are you going to be sitting there at public hearings with uh, someone shouting from the back uh, uh, asking questions about your case. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's one where you let discretion be the better part of valor and uh, avoid, uh, avoid public situations for a while. And if that means stepping down from a lucrative school board position yes. at most, <laughs> uh, then so be it. Frank, what do you think? Do well, you I, I don't disagree with yeah. what Pat says on this thing. I think uh, obviously a person accused of crime uh, should, as a cardinal rule, not talk to the press, not talk mm -hmm. to people who play the keyboards on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to uh, those people with whom you have a confidential communications relationship like a lawyer or a mental mm -hmm. health provider or, or someone who uh, essentially is uh, foreclosed from talking about uh, your own observations mm -hmm. about your issues. Um, as we saw with uh, the uh, governor of uh, New York recently, I think there comes a point in time when uh, you're continuing to hold an office uh, allows the story to become uh, an encyclopedic chapter book, if you mm -hmm. will. And uh, I would uh, always suggest to my client that uh, he permit his or her lawyer to say that uh, he is uh, stepping down from this position uh, because his lawyer believes that uh, uh, he needs to concentrate on uh, his defense in the matter that uh, has been raised uh, and, and not through uh, the office that he holds. So along those lines, do you think in our hypothetical there's any benefit to this president of the local school board's lawyer holding a press conference? Uh, you know, I, I'm not a fan of press conferences, although I've held press conferences. And uh, what I uh, have held press conferences for 
usually is because if um, uh, I, as the representative of somebody who is in a pickle, whether it's criminal or job-related, um, uh, will be uh, dunned by uh, half a dozen different uh, press sources. And I think just from the point of view of economy of time, right. first and foremost. And secondly, just so that uh, there are not different messages being uh, communicated mm -hmm. to the public uh, relative to uh, your client's circumstances. Uh, I've had press conferences in uh, you know, the lobby of my apartment, my condo, or in my office. And uh, I think that uh, it's more for the sake of economy and consistency uh, than, than it is for effectiveness. Got it. That's one that really lends itself to uh, a statement issued on behalf mm -hmm. of not, you know, a statement by the lawyer, but there's the ever popular, I'm committed to this uh, school district and to its activities and uh, enjoyed my time on the board, but, and to keep things going forward, I wouldn't want anything to serve as a distraction, mm -hmm. so therefore I'm set, stepping down, you know, that. No follow-up questions, anything mm -hmm. else, but they can't hurt you with a statement like that. Right, right. Yeah, not talking about the allegations at all, but just no. keeping it keeping it pretty uh, beige, as some people would say. <laughs> all right, last hypothetical, and this might sound like someone that is uh, has recently been on trial, but I promise you it's just a hypothetical. <laughs> Here it is. I'm a lawyer for a nationally known recording artist. My client has been indicted on sex trafficking charges. All the major news networks are calling asking for an interview. What should I do? Frank? Well, I, I don't allow my clients to be ta talking to the press. Let, okay. me, let me clarify, an interview from the lawyer. Oh, uh, you know, I, I might at, at that point in time uh, view uh, considering uh, issuing a written position rather than an oral position mm -hmm. and uh, that gives you the time and the uh, a thoughtfulness of putting together a statement and then to all those people who call you either email fax or hand mm -hmm. a copy of your public uh, position with respect to the celebrity that you're representing or you tell them uh, at this time uh, there'll be no comment from my client or from uh, my office. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think that um, there is always a danger that uh, even uh, an experienced, skilled communicator can, um, uh, when being approached with uh, different questions from different individuals in the media, uh, contradict him or herself on their view of the case. Yeah and uh, also uh, create, if you will, uh, a kind of um, a concern for evaluating the credibility of the source, meaning the lawyer or the, or the legal representative of the person who's uh, in potential big-time trouble. Mm -hmm. Pat, what do you think? Um, under no circumstances could you do a, a live interview mm -hmm. or respond to questions in that regard. If you issued a statement, particularly in a matter involving sexual assault, mm -hmm. which there are a lot of considerations of and responding um, with any degree of specificity, one, puts you on shaky ethical grounds uh, uh, because the matter is in litigation, and two, locks you in. Mm -hmm. um, if there are a variety of defenses and they aren't all, she's lying. I mean, public statements when mishandled, and we've all 
seen that happen numerous times over the years, and you know, and I, I think back to the, uh, uh, you know, to the syringe in the Coke can, uh, you know, place, uh, you know, following press conferences and everything. Mm -hmm. You've closed out uh, a variety of defenses by issuing public statements. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with Frank. Under no scenario can you do a question and answer with an upcoming trial with, you know, alleged victims and things right. of that nature. So we're all in agreement that um, if Oprah's best friend wanted to interview your client and you, that we would not do that. <laughs> Some people might, but we would not. Agreed. Yes. Uh, uh, there's no way the client can talk. Yes. Uh, because uh, uh, the client, uh, if he or she ever is in a position to tell uh, his or her story as it relates to the allegations of wrongdoing, uh, uh, may have to, uh, if you will, massage mm -hmm. or modify uh, their r reflections about the allegations mm -hmm. against them uh, as those uh, allegations against them become more pointed. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a question that stems from that. So. Obviously, if your client does an interview, someone's making a transcript somewhere of it. Does that break their Fifth Amendment right to not testify? Do you think that the prosecution could call them to testify about what public statements he's made about the allegations? No, the question is whether they could get the statement uh, mm -hmm. admitted into evidence, um, and then it would have to fit, you know, under under a hearsay. Uh, exception uh, in that regard, but mm -hmm. no, in making a, a public statement um, uh, does not, uh, is not going to be interpreted as a waiver of the mm -hmm. Fifth Amendment, in other words, that you're required to take the stand. Right. So, I don't think that you're required to take the stand, but, mm -hmm. but I think uh, in nine times out of ten, any public statement that you make that's recorded mm -hmm. um, is admissible. And uh, right. your Fifth Amendment doesn't come into play because uh, this was a statement that you made willingly and, mm -hmm. and voluntarily unless uh, your advocate can show somehow that, that uh, you were coerced into making the statement uh, by reason of some pressures that were put on you by the, by the uh, correspondent who uh, has elicited this statement from you. But, but uh, that, that's, the, um, that's why the cardinal rule an inviolable mm -hmm. cardinal rule is you never let your client in a criminal case uh, talk to right. anyone, mm -hmm. including next door neighbors, you know, right. or distant relatives or what have you, mm -hmm. because that will come back and has a tendency to hit you in the forehead. It's time for the definition of the day. Pat, you mentioned that you do a lot of healthcare work, and I one do. of one of the terms that comes up a lot is DSPS. What is that? Okay, uh, DSPS is the Department of Safety and Professional Services <clears throat> for the state of Wisconsin. They are an investigative and regulating um, agency that serves a variety of uh, boards of uh, people who hold a professional license mm -hmm. uh, in the healthcare area. They um, receive complaints um, and investigate and, uh, and in some cases bring licensing actions uh, before the medical examining board, the psychology board, the nursing board, 
so on down the line, and other professions also. The significant uh, significance of DSBS and the uh, uh, is that they have, because the target holds a professional license, there is no Fifth Amendment, or there is mm -hmm. uh, you are required to cooperate with the agency that is charged with investigating matters involving uh, professional misconduct. So therefore, where there's also a criminal matter, then it's necessary to jockey between the two. But as an agency, you can't say, no, I refuse to produce these records, right. or no, I refuse to sit down to an interview. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a fine line to walk where there's a uh, if anyone holds a professional license, they're at risk uh, with regard to any investigation being forced to cooperate with them. I had a case uh, several years ago. My client was uh, indicted by the federal grand jury in the Eastern District of Wisconsin for committing a fraud against um, a very large manufacturing company located in Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, and the allegations against him were that he took cash and paid off uh, a relevant uh, person within the enterprise of the of, the, of mm -hmm. this company, and uh, the company sued him for money damages. Uh, during the course of the uh, representation of him in both the civil and the criminal case, uh, I declined to allow him to make certain statements mm -hmm. in depositions uh, in preparation for the civil case, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Needless to say, I didn't allow him to make any statements with respect to the allegations of criminal wrongdoing against him. You don't say. We got to the trial in the civil case. I made a deal in the criminal case, mm -hmm. and I wanted to put him on the stand. The, uh, uh, the prosecution in the case, civil prosecutors, um, moved to deny him the opportunity to testify in front of the jury. The judge, who was a homer for the company, mm -hmm. uh, said, no, I'm not going to let you testify in this case. So uh, he lost his right to explain away a lot of uh, what was uh, damaging information in the civil case, and it got demolished by the jury in, yeah. in the result. Yeah, no, I can imagine that that would not be very helpful to be barred from taking the stand. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for taking time and sitting down and talking with me. I always learn a lot, and I'm just really grateful that you guys had some time in your very busy schedules. Sure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode where we talk with our newest GRGB associate, Megan Drury, about what it was like to graduate during the COVID era. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.